Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this episode, the topic is narcissism. Few of us lead lives that are untouched by narcissists. If we're in a relationship with one or have a narcissistic boss, we may find ourselves feeling self-doubt, despair, confusion, anxiety, and depression. Joining us is clinical psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Romani Durvasala, who is on a mission to demystify and dismantle the toxic influence of narcissism. Her latest book is called, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. Thank you so much for joining us, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I re- I'm really appreciative of it. I'm so glad you want to have this conversation. Yeah, and we're wondering, why did you title the last book, Don't You Know Who I Am? What's the meaning behind that title? So it's sort of one of the narcissistic person's calling cards. Every one of us has seen a narcissistic person getting into an entitled huff saying, don't you know who I am? As though they are, they should be accorded special treatment. And, you know, it doesn't just happen in a public place where, I don't know, a person's not getting the table at the restaurant they want, or they're being made to wait in line. Sometimes people even encounter this in their close relationships or sort of holding a partner accountable or something like that. The person will say, uh, don't you know who I am? So it's sort of like the mantra of the entitled. What is the cause of narcissism? It's a complicated question because it's not a nice, easy, linear path. The likely answer is sort of a mashup of some sort of sort of temperamental factors, like sort of our inborn personality. But the bulk of it is what we call social developmental. It's the stuff that happened to a child in their early life. So I don't think that they're really born. They really are made. But what happens is a child is born with a temperament. Again, it's that biological part of our personality. And in a baby, a baby doesn't have a person personality, but we might be able to see that some babies and some young children are easier to soothe than others. And some are more difficult. Some kids are just more difficult. They're, they're more demanding. They're more attention seeking. They're more agitated. There is some belief that that difficult temperament comes up against a world that isn't that patient with such a child. And people might get frustrated with that child. So a child with that temperament is already having less than optimal interactions with the world. And then when you throw in that things that are completely out of the child's control, regardless of their temperament, things like chaos in the early environment, inconsistency, unavailable caregivers, and in some cases, trauma, that's one set of origins personalities, but the piece, there's also another group of folks and another group of children who are very much exposed to things like very conditional love kids who get attention when they perform the way the parent wants. So in other words, the kid is getting the soccer trophy or they're winning the spelling bee, or they're really cute. And then the parent is all about them. But when that child maybe has a more of an emotional need needs to be soothed or is feeling disappointed. And the parents aren't interested in that kind of emotional heavy lifting. And the child really learns that the superficial stuff about them is what gets them loved. So for the rest of their lives, they really sort of stay in this superficial loop. The challenge with these explanations though, is there are a lot of people, I'd say even a lot more people, especially with that sort of difficult childhood, the invalidating caregivers or the trauma or the neglect kind of stuff. A lot more people who have those backstories don't turn out to be narcissistic. In fact, they go into adulthood and struggle with issues around, for example, attachment and anxiety and other issues. So this idea that there's one set path, and if this happens to a child, they'll become a narcissistic adult doesn't really fly. It's a combination of things. And and then that combination just 
comes together. And then society has a lot to do with it as well. This does this may not affect children as much. So children do start to learn like, oh, I want to have all the toys. And, and they might start doing the math on what's involved in that in terms of how you behave and how you get attention. But as we go through life, what we find is that kids find out, oh, if I'm the winner, I can get away with anything. And we value these patterns in society. Narcissistic people make more money and narcissistic parents model narcissistic behavior for their children. So like I said, it's a really complicated question. And how do you define narcissism? So narcissism is a personality style that is characterized by a person who consistently shows lack of empathy or inconsistent empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, superficiality. Uh, these are people who are very validation and admiration seeking. They're very egocentric. They have trouble regulating their emotions, typically anger. They don't do well if they're frustrated, disappointed, or stressed. They are not self-reflective. They don't reflect on how their behavior and words affect other people. They're not good with consequences. They tend to shift blame onto other people. And above all else, though, they're deeply insecure and they feel very inadequate. And for them, and it's happening at an unconscious process, they don't want anybody to know that. They don't want people to know their insecurity and their inadequacy. So all these things I've listed, like the entitlement and the grandiosity, all of that, it's like a suit of armor around the narcissist that lets them walk around saying, aren't I the best? I'm the greatest. Because in essence, it's shrouding this deeper insecurity. But if anything in their life happens to sort of ping that insecurity, I don't know, like I said, they get disappointed or they don't win or they don't get the promotion that's where we see that sort of insecurity bubble up, like in the form of shame. And then they'll tend to lash out really angrily and cruelly at other people. I didn't realize that within narcissism, there are different types of narcissists. What are those? And how can we look out for these people? Yeah, there are a lot of different types. And that, the, the challenge with that is not only their types, but narcissism's on a continuum, ranging from sort of the mild, superficial, almost vapid, annoying Instagram narcissist, all the way up to malignant, almost dangerous, exploitative narcissism. But then there are also these types. And these are sort of the classical grandiose narcissist, who's your sort of standard, charming, charismatic show off. There is the vulnerable narcissist who tends to walk around really victimized and sullen and angry and petulant. There's the malignant narcissist who is more manipulative and exploitative and almost has a lot of a sort of a psychopathic feel that they will really do bad things and not seem to feel particularly bad about it. There are communal narcissists who to the world might seem like sort of a humanitarian savior and they're always bringing the neighbor over chicken soup when they're sick. But in fact, they're doing those things for the sole purpose of getting validation and admiration. So the nice things they do are so they can walk around the world saying, aren't I a great person? I'm so helpful. But in fact, they're actually quite unempathic and entitled with the people around them where they don't need to do sort of this little help to get validation kind of, um, kind of trick. There are neglectful narcissists who literally, they don't ever take notice of people around them unless they need them for something. So they almost view people as kitchen appliances. I don't need the blender now, so I'm not going to pay any attention to you, but when I need a blender, I will turn to you. 
There are self-righteous narcissists who are very rigid in there and very moralistic and very judgmental. They believe that the only way life can be lived is their way. They can be quite snobby. And the, their cruelty is that they will literally almost stop loving someone if that person isn't living in the way they want. So an example could be a, a an adult child may even make a decision to marry someone that's not what the parents want. Like in other words, a, a different race or religion or something like that. And that parent will say, well, you're dead to us. And it's very cold and a very eliminating kind of negating sort of approach. And then there are forms of narcissism that are often associated with culture and, and how people are socialized in certain, you know, certain cultural backgrounds. And it can sort of be intergenerational that we'll see that people get away with getting to be really sort of um, imperious and arrogant. And we say, oh, that's just the culture. And it sort of enables those sorts of patterns too. And how do narcissists affect others in their lives? It's not good. The way narcissists affect other people, not good. It leaves them feeling confused, self-blaming, angry, anxious, frustrated, powerless, helpless. It leaves you invalidated, minimized, trivialized. It's, it's bad. I mean, the, the impact that these people have on other people, it's all bad. And it's a really interesting sort of dark corner in the world of mental health. Because typically when we look at a person's mental health issues, we look at them as though the person's a freestanding unit. You're depressed. Okay. Let's talk about your depression. Sure. We may reflect on things happening in their life. Like, oh, someone's died or you're having financial problems, but this is such a unique space that then what the narcissistic, what people with narcissistic personalities do to other people is really awful. And what's doubly awful is they don't seem to have any insight into what they're doing, or if they do, they don't care. So often if a person's doing something terrible to us, we'll say, this isn't okay. And they'll say, Ooh, sorry about that. These folks are saying that's your problem or no, I'm not, or you're too sensitive. So it is a it's a mess. I mean, I have to tell you what, what this does to people is a mess, which is why I'm so focused on education about this, because I want to tell people what they're doing. It's not a you thing. It's a them thing. And they're doing this to everybody. You're not their unique target. Obviously the closer your relationship to them, the worse it's going to be for you because you're getting more exposure, but anybody sitting in your seat as their partner would be enduring this bad behavior. I think a lot of people say, um, oh, I see some good things in this person. Like they were really charming and they're really attractive or they're really successful. So I'm reluctant to leave this relationship because what if the next person gets a better version of them? There is no better version. And this is it. So if we have gone on a few dates with someone and we're listening to this show, realizing, oh, shoot, maybe he's a narcissist. He started off great, maybe on date three or date four or something. And they're starting to see some traits that maybe seem narcissistic. Should they run for the hills? Or is it possible that maybe this person isn't as bad as they think or maybe can be fixed? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think my concern with this is that, you know, we're getting so we, so many of us get really lost in the label. Is this person a narcissist? And I'd say, you know what? I wouldn't even get lost in like, do they tick all the boxes? Oh, okay. Well, maybe they're not that entitled and pay attention to how this person leaves you feeling. Are you feeling increasingly like tense around them or worried? Like, Oh, I hope the waiter doesn't bring the wrong drink because they're going to get really angry or boy, this person doesn't really listen to me when I'm talking to them. Or there's something like, I just don't feel fully at ease. Yeah. They're charming. Yeah. They're charismatic. Yeah. They're interesting, but 
that stuff is sort of superficial stuff. It's that I always tell folks, everyone asks me, how do I know I'm with a narcissist, right? They want like the question you can ask. I tell them, you know what? You're going to feel it in your body. You're not fully going to relax. You might feel those little hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You're going to say, you're going to find yourself already making lots of justifications like, oh, they didn't mean that. Or this is just the awkwardness of meeting someone for the first time. But if you're, it's, if it's feeling uncomfortable, then it is uncomfortable. And then say to yourself, why am I voluntarily staying in a situation that feels uncomfortable? And who decided that charm and charisma are just such wonderful things for a relationship? You know, I mean, I like ice cream as much as the next person. I don't need it for breakfast. <laughs> you know, it's- yeah. I love how you say that it's actually held together with hope that that's what it's like to date a narcissist. Yeah. These relationships are very much held together by hope because it's this idea of it's going to get better or it's going to change. And it's often in this, what we call a future faked way that it'll get better once they get promoted, or this will get better once we move to a bigger apartment, or I'm sure things will be better once we get married. Like it's always at once we, once we versus now, and that danger of it's going to get better. There's very little evidence that these personalities change in order for a person's personality to change. Hey, it doesn't much. I mean, personality is sort of, it's like a fingerprint, but the healthier the person is, the more likely you can create change, right? Because so another one, in other words, if a person says, oh, I'm a little stubborn and I know that's not a good quality, but there's a flexibility to their personality. They'll say, I need to work on that. And they'll use mindfulness and therapy as such a tool and they'll own their stubbornness. But for people who are narcissistic, they don't think there's anything wrong with their behavior. They're very, very, very poor insight into how they affect other people. So where's the change going to come from? They're not listening to you. They don't have any empathy or respect for you. So whatever feedback you're giving them is just getting them agitated and more angry at you and viewing you as the problem. So I'm not sure where this change is supposed to come from. So yet people want it to work out. Maybe they've already invested too much of themselves in it. Maybe they're already living with the person. Maybe they've been dating them six months. Maybe they, they, there's enough similar things like, oh my gosh, I've been dating people for three years and I haven't been able to find a person who, who's like this and who does this or who looks like that. And then they get stuck in making those superficial pieces fit. And so they say, uh, maybe it will get better. If you're waiting for something to get better, that concerns me for somebody in a relationship. You know, yeah, sure. There may be things going on in a moment. I don't know that, for example, somebody just lost their job. Sure. That's not when someone's going to be graceful, but if you're constantly future faking yourself and asking yourself, when is this going to get better? Or I think it will get better. Or you're putting the responsibility on yourself. None of us, and I'm saying this as a therapist, really fully have the power to change someone else's behavior. We can point out their behavior to them, but we can't change it. And so that responsibility lies in the individual. So that, that hope, but there's also other things that keep people stuck in narcissistic relationships, fear, guilt, pity, practical reasons, love. They actually say, I actually do love this person, even with their flaws. And I'd also argue lack of information that they don't like people say, I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't realize that this couldn't change. I didn't understand that this personality type is an issue. They just didn't know. And once a person recognizes that this is a pattern, that's not just you, but millions and millions and millions of other people, then a lot of people will say, no, I don't want to, if this isn't going to change, then I don't want to stay in this. I am curious, what percentage of the population is narcissistic? You know, here, this is a tough one because 
the research has largely focused on something called narcissistic personality disorder. And that's actually resulted in some of the biggest confusion in these conversations because narcissistic personality disorder is a diagnosis. It is actually not a common one, maybe one to 5% of the population, depending on who did the research and when and where they did it. That's very different than being narcissistic. In order for something to be diagnosed, a mental health practitioner actually has to meet with that person and ask them lots of questions and look at patterns. Nar to be narcissistic, it's a trait, like being agreeable or friendly or open. Those are all just trait patterns, and narcissism is a trait. And, um, and it's a trait that gets developed, and it becomes a pattern of behavior. So just like an agreeable person is humble and modest and empathic and might uh, might go out of their way to help another person. Those are patterns. A narcissistic person is all the things I've talked about. And so when we look at what is this number, one number I've heard floated around time and time again, I actually like this number. I, it feels right to me, but we don't have great numbers on this. It's somewhere around 20%, 20 to 25% of the population is noticeably narcissistic, meaning that their behavior is causing problems for at least one other person, whether it's a partner, their child, their family, their coworkers. And if you were to do, if let's use 20%, okay, that's one in five. So that means statistically speaking, if there are five people in your life, at least one of them is narcissistic, right? I think those numbers vary where, depending on where a person lives. I live in Los Angeles. It's a big city. It's an entertainment city. I think the number's higher here. I think in New York city, it's probably higher. I think when we go maybe to a smaller town, numbers that are lower, but if we look at the whole population, 20% feels like a pretty good spitballed number. How common are female narcissists compared to males? And I'm curious how they present differently. So when we see, and again, you sort of using a binary format, like we have, you know, women and men, and we think of our, our, it always, we always think of the guy as the narcissist, right? The big kind of arrogant, um, preening, pretentious narcissist. Yeah. Well, there's some truth to that, right? Grandiose narcissism and malignant narcissism are more significantly more common in men. However, that vulnerable narcissism, that victimized, resentful, petulant, sullen narcissism, equal between men and women. So what that means is that when we see narcissism in women, certainly there are plenty of grandiose narcissistic women. There are malignant narcissistic women. They're all, they're there. I mean, they're absolutely there. Too many people complain about having a narcissistic mother. So obviously that means that there's narcissistic women out there, right? So this idea that this is always the men is, is completely wrong. And I've worked with a lot of men who are in relationships with narcissistic women, but that more sort of that again, that sullen, resentful, victimized narcissism tends to be more equally distributed. And so we'd see something similar though. A woman who's narcissistic will not be empathic, will be manipulative, will be entitled. Um, there was that, you know, we've seen depictions of this women who are very demanding. And I, you know, I, uh, why should I have to stay in line? I demand to see a manager kind of thing. That's narcissism. You know, so of course we see it. And like I said, enough people out there say I have a narcissistic mother for us to know that there are narcissistic women. But if, if we were to go on the odds of it, how it presents in a woman, it's going to look more victimized and um, anxious and um, feeling that life has been unfair to them. How can we set boundaries with the narcissists in our lives so that they don't have the devastating impact that they can have. 
setting boundaries with a narcissistic person is a very difficult thing to do. And it's the only thing you can do. So I, I often give people um, something called the deep technique. And the deep technique is when I say, when you interact with a narcissistic person, don't defend, don't explain, don't engage and don't personalize. And by doing that, so they're going on and on and accusing you of this, that, and the other, which you know patently is untrue. But our tendency is to say, I never said that. I never did that. And they'll say, sure you did. And now you're in a back and forth grudge match. You're never going to win. So when the narcissistic person sort of tries to bait you, and that's what narcissistic folks do, they like the fight. They're good at the fight. And the fight in a way allows them to view you as the problem because we tend to get frothed up in fights. And the minute you take the fight, they almost immediately calm down as though the minute we look messy, they look calm. So I tell people, don't take the fight. That's one key way you can set a boundary. The other is to just disengage. And so when again, they're not only trying to bait you, don't take the bait, but when you know you're being set up for the same fall, I always liken it to Lucy in the football with Charlie Brown. Like, come on, Charlie Brown, you know she's going to pull the football. With a narcissistic person, you know they're going to pull the football. So don't engage. And so ask yourself, for example, if this is a friend and repeatedly you've gone to something they want to and repeatedly they've left you behind or treated you disrespectfully, at what point do we have to take responsibility and say, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not engaging. Because a lot of people say, oh, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I want to give them a second chance. Why? I mean, how many times do you need to see it? And I know I've worked with clients who say, okay, I think I've seen it enough times. It's not my job to tell someone you should see it the first time or the second time or even the 25th time. But the boundary is very much based on realistic expectations. The funny thing about narcissistic relationships is compared to relationships with healthy people, they're incredibly predictable. You know what they're going to do. It's going, always going to be about them. It's always going to be what's convenient for them. It's always going to be what they, their preferences, and they're not going to account for your feelings or wants. If your feelings and wants are happen to be aligned with theirs on a given day, then it's going to feel like, no, we're on the same page. I said, no, you're on their page. It feels like you're on the same page because it happens to be that your page is their page. But if there's a day when their page is different than your page, you're going to say, I don't know what happened. I'll say, what changed was their page and your page was different. This isn't rocket science. And so it's knowing all of that and then recognizing that they're never going to make allowances for you and make your decisions accordingly. But it's really about realistic expectations and recognizing that this isn't going to change. Talk to us about trauma bonding and its importance in all of this. So trauma bonding is a relational pattern we see in which people are, are caught in, in a dysfunctional cycle of, of sort of playing out the same conflict over and over again and of blaming themselves for all the problems in a relationship. So it goes back to that idea of hope. So there's this hope that this time it's going to be different. So a trauma bonded relationship often has a typically has its origins in earlier cycles in a person's life that with at least one or both parents or some other significant caregiver, there was this pattern of a very conditional, confused, inconsistent relationship. 
this sense of what can I do to please this person? How can I win them over? Or the basic idea that invalidation equals love. Because for a child, the only game in town is their caregivers or their parents, right? They can't go out and say, you know what? I'm going to go cheat on you, mom, and I'm going to go find another mom. That's not how a kid works. And so a child's <laughs> got to work with what they've got. And so what's in front of them, if they're not good, if they're unavailable or narcissistic parents, the child then gets into a complex web of rationalizations and justifications. Maybe this is my fault. Maybe there's more I can do. Maybe I can clean my room more. Maybe I can get better grades. Maybe I can be better. And so the, the child literally almost exhausts themselves and becomes quite anxious. And all of those emotional reactions get equated to this primal idea of love. So as that, that child then grows into an adult and gets into relationships, they replicate those cycles in their adult relationships. This idea of, I have to earn love. I have to be better. And in fact, when those themes aren't, aren't happening, like basically if somebody meets who somebody who has that kind of family, and then they meet someone as an adult who's really healthy and just loves them unconditionally. And it's an easy relationship and it's not dysfunctional. Sadly, some people will say, oh, I kind of feel bored. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Bored is good. You're not really bored. Like this is healthy. But in the trauma bonded cycle, it's really an attempt to work through what happened in some of those early relationships. And like I said, we see things like having the same fight over and over again. The partner becomes a little bit of a one-stop shop. So you feel like you have to be their personal assistant and their chef and their house cleaner and their best friend and their life coach. In trauma-bonded relationships, the person often blames themselves for what's happening and they keep trying to make it better. They keep, uh, they don't feel comfortable expressing their needs in a relationship because obviously if they express their needs that they're, they're going to be rejected. So they don't want to do that. They, they, they don't want to put themselves in that position of vulnerability. Trauma bonded folks also get quite isolated because there's a sort of embarrassment about what's happening in the relationship. So they don't want to talk about it. So they get more and more isolated, have less and less support, very similar to what happens to children from these kinds of dysfunctional families who will often get isolated from peers and other people because in essence, they're sort of embarrassed because they recognize that what's happening in their family doesn't look like what's happening in others. Doctor, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about narcissism that you had to learn the hard way and that you'd really like to pass on to others so that they can avoid those, those kinds of hurts? That it wasn't my fault and that it doesn't change. I wish somebody had told me that. The I love that. It's, that it's simple. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's perfect. It's that it wasn't my fault, that it's not your fault. If somebody's behaving like this, you know, obviously we have to give it sort of a, we have to wait a beat and give it that New York minute and pay attention and say, okay, let me take accountability for my behavior here. Always a good thing to do. But once you do that and you're like, this is who this person is, that you stop blaming yourself for it. And I think that this idea of taking responsibility for other people's behavior is actually caused so much of the misery in the world that we're in now. If I was going to ask, add sort of like a little add on to that is that everyone out there needs to stop enabling these relationships and stop telling people to forgive and stop telling people to give them a second chance and stop telling people to give them the benefit of the doubt. By the time a person talks to you about a toxic relationship, they've been suffering for a long time for someone else to come in and say, well, did you really think about this? Trust me, they did. And when you say that to someone else, you set them way back.
Yeah. And you get really defensive if they say, well, what is it about this person? It's like, you can't describe it, but instead of thinking to yourself, you know what, that's kind of weird. I can't describe it. You think, well, it's so deep. They just don't get it. I'm so glad you said that piece about, I can't describe it. That right there, going back to this issue of a trauma bonded relationship is actually one of the signature elements of the trauma bonded relationship. If you go to someone in a trauma bonded relationship and you say, what is it you love about this person? The answer you're going to get, is like, I don't know. I can't describe it. Like it's a, I don't know. Like, it's sort of like this connection. Like, I don't know. Like, and they keep saying, I don't know. I'm like, you know, I keep saying, I don't know. Cause there's no, there there. There's nothing here. But yeah. if you talk to a person in a healthy relationship and you say, what is it you love about this person? I say, they're my best friend. Like we, we do things together. I feel supported. We have so many shared interests. We have shared values. Like they really kind of hit it. It's nothing magical. It's nothing like magical connection. I don't know. I can't really describe it kind of nonsense. And when people can't give me that hard and fast answer, I immediately wonder, is this a trauma bonded relationship? Doctor, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and learn more about your work and your books? So you can find me on all social media at Dr. Romani, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I. You can also go to my website, which is drromani.com. Same thing, all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I.com. There you can find information about you know, our, all the work I'm doing in narcissism, my books and other programs that we have. For people who are trying to heal from narcissistic abuse, which is a lot of people, we actually have a subscription healing program where every month there's new programs and Q and A's and special workshops and journal prompts and all of that. And you can go to my website or go to my Instagram and you can get information on how to register for that. And you can find my books at any of your, any bookstore. And I'm a big fan of independent bookstores. So once you get the name, one thing I'd suggest is you can also go to your independent bookstore, ask them to order them and they'll get them in stock for you. And then, you know, support support our small businesses. Well, doctor, we thank you so much for your wisdom. It really has been, has been very helpful. I think for a lot of people. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you did this show. And I love your, I love how you just sort of take these things that nobody tells us about and helps people <laughs> learn about them. Really grateful to you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so very much. Again, our thanks to Dr. Romani Dervasala. Her latest book is called Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Maura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> 